We are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. This morning, Michael will be preaching from chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Good morning, Christ community. It's great to be with you this morning. As Pat said, my name is Michael Johnson. I'm one of the staff members here at the church. It's a privilege to serve you guys week in and week out. Uh, my wife Chastity and I, along with our three, soon to be four kids, uh, recently moved to Rantoul. Uh, we moved there back in October. A little background, if you're not familiar with the town, about uh, our community. We have uh, a lower household income than the average town in America. You're not going to find a whole lot of people with uh, four-year degrees in Rantoul, myself included. Uh, our, our town has a certain reputation. If you have heard about Rantoul, there's usually two extremes that people usually land on. People either think of our community as a town full of hoodlums or a town full of hillbillies. You might have heard our not-so-affectionately nicknamed of Rantucky. I think those are both unfair stereotypes of Rantoul, but over time... Towns build a reputation. Over time, their track record and culture and history inform that reputation, and that's the same for us as individuals, and it's the same for church communities. Today, we come to the fifth of our seven letters to the churches of Revelation. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Revelation is the very last book of the Bible, and our letter this morning is to the church in Sardis. This letter was written to the church about 30 years after they had been established. And over time, the church in Sardis had developed a reputation. And they had the reputation for being alive. Which sounds like a great thing for a church to be known for. But Jesus has a harsh, sobering warning for this church in Sardis. And I think it's an important warning for the church today. Out of all the letters thus far, I think it might hit closest to home for us as well. A little reminder about the structure of these letters that we've been walking through thus far. Jesus begins each of his letters with an introduction of himself. He highlights a different attribute of who he is. And it's referenced again back in uh, Revelation 1 that Pat walked us through earlier in the series. These symbolic introductions are important. They help us to better understand what these letters are all about. Jesus then moves on to the body of the letters where he gives some insight into the specific church that he's writing to. 
He encourages some and reprimands others. There's a mix of the two usually. These sections begin with Jesus saying, I know. For better or for worse, Jesus knows what's going on in the churches. And Jesus concludes each of his letters with a a future promise. And I share this structure with us because this is going to help us kind of walk through our letter this morning. Uh, So we'll be looking to just answer a few questions as we walk through our passage. We're going to look at how does Jesus introduce himself? And how does that inform the rest of the letter for us? What does Jesus know about the church in Sardis? And what does Jesus promise for the future? Uh, and, and, And to that extent, who is deserving of that promise? So we'll be walking through those questions. Before we do, let me pray for us one more time. Father, we ask that you give us soft hearts this morning. As we come to your word, we want to be people that are shaped and molded by your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, be with us this morning and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and jump right into that first question. How does Jesus introduce himself? Kind of what attributes does he highlight? Uh, Let's look again at his introduction in Revelation 3, verse 1. Again, if you're new to the Bible, the larger numbers in your Bible, those are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, that very first verse there. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Throughout uh, the book of Revelation, our inspired author, John, uses sevens time and time and time again as kind of his trademark. And this number seven is the, uh, a reference to perfection. It's the number of perfection. And here the seven stars and the seven spirits, they reference the perfect spirit of God the one and only Holy Spirit. There are two things that we want to keep in mind, uh, two things that are going to help us with this letter, uh, two things to remember about the Holy Spirit, its person, his person and work that are helpful for us here. First, the Spirit is the source of life. If you remember back to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, God forms the man out of the dust of the earth and he breathes his life into the nostrils of the man and the man becomes a living creature. So the spirit is God's breath of life and he's not just the giver of physical life, but he is also the spirit of spiritual life. Uh, We heard earlier in our absolution that God promised to, to change our sinful hard hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh by giving us a new spirit. God gives us his spirit and resurrects us to spiritual life. To be a Christian is to be regenerated, to be made spiritually alive by the spirit of God. So the spirit is the source of life. Second thing to remember about the spirit is the spirit knows everything. Uh, Later, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, Jesus is depicted as the lamb who is slain. 
And the Spirit is symbolized as His seven eyes. Again, seven, perfection, perfect eyes, perfect sight. The Spirit sees everything on all the earth. He is uh, everywhere present. The Spirit of God is limitless. So He knows everything. So here in our letter, Jesus is introducing Himself as the one who possesses the Spirit of God. Jesus is the Son of God, and and as we know, Jesus the Son and the Father are united. And here we get a picture of Jesus and the Spirit united in a holy union as well. Jesus is introducing himself as the all-knowing source of life. So what does this all-knowing source of life know about the church in Sardis? What does Jesus tell us about them? Let's look at the second half of verse 1 through verse 2 as we find, again, the reputation of the church in Sardis. Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What is going on in this church? How does a church gain a reputation for being alive and yet be functionally, spiritually dead? Well, the biggest clues to help us understand that are actually noticing what is not in our letter today. And all the letters to the other churches to this point, there are two things that are absent, completely absent from these letters, from this letter. The first thing is, there's no encouragement. Jesus doesn't encourage this church at all. It is a full rebuke. You are a dead, decaying church, Jesus says to them. This is also the first of the letters that Jesus doesn't acknowledge any outside opposition. Right? We've seen attacks from false teachers that are trying to come in and infiltrate the church. We're seeing social rejection, uh, societal pressures. But here, Jesus doesn't mention any persecution, any trials, no tribulation at all. So no encouragement, no opposition. How does that happen in a day and age when Christians are facing severe persecution all over the world? Well, the only way that I can think of that a church in first century Asia Minor would be able to avoid persecution was if they looked no different from the world. Only if they blended in with their culture, the culture around them, could they avoid hardship completely. So Sardis, it was a a prominent capital city in Lydia in modern-day Turkey. Uh, They were a lucrative trade center. They were a leading judicial and administrative community, tack on a college campus, they sound pretty familiar. The the town was known for being secure and successful. And the church in Sardis looked like a successful church as well. But there was this contradiction between their reputation of the church and their claim of the name of Jesus. 
As I thought about this, and I'm sure as we sit here today, it can be so easy for us to think about different churches, maybe in our community, or churches in the prominent America, American churches that appear to have signs of this booming, healthy congregation. Maybe they've got a lot of programs and activities. Maybe they have a beautiful church building. Um, maybe they have great doctrine even, and they serve their community really well. And yet they're spiritually dead. Churches can only be alive through the fellowship with Jesus and the life-giving Spirit. They may look good on the outside, but if they are not primarily about making Jesus' name great, then all their efforts are in vain. So if Jesus is not central, he gets muddied, the gospel gets lost, and Jesus says that this is dead religion. I'm very thankful that here at Christ Community we were established and, and continue to strive to have Jesus at the center to be a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated church. It may be easy for us to point fingers at others, but I think we can relate to this too. I think we can relate to being Christians who sit and hear on Sundays, but then when we go to our workplaces or college campus or in our community, we kind of just blend in. We may even be involved in an MC, a missional community, throughout the week, but that's as far as following Jesus goes. If we really love Jesus the most, then it pours out from us into all areas of our life. Do our neighbors and our coworkers, people that we interact with, do they know that we treasure Jesus? Do they even know that we're a Christian? Do we just kind of fit in in culture? See, we give the illusion of life when we look more like the world than we look like Jesus. The greatest threat to Christians is not the changing culture. It's not some world powers. The greatest threat to Christianity and to Christians is us looking too much like the world that we live in. Over the 30 years since the church in Sardis was planted, they were no longer this vibrant church. They were zombies, the walking dead. With this appearance of life, they were doing religious works, but they were dead works. But I love that verse 3 is here. Jesus wasn't finished with them. Jesus looked at this dead, decaying church and he graciously offered the antidote. Look with me at verse 3. He says, Wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die. For I, I'm sorry, that's verse 2. Verse 3, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. At some point, Sardis had heard the gospel. Right? They had heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They had heard that Jesus' perfect life was lived for them. They had heard that Jesus paid the penalty for their sins by dying on the cross, just as the Old Testament scriptures had foretold. They had heard that he had been raised from the dead and King Jesus ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. 
They had heard the good news of the gospel, but they had fallen asleep. They had forgotten that Jesus had come and that he was coming back. This time, King Jesus is going to come to cast final judgment on all those who refuse to submit their whole lives to his lordship. And he will come when we least expect it. And instead of casting this dying, decaying church off completely, Jesus calls them to wake up, to repent and believe the gospel, remember the gospel. We often think about repentance as a, a confession of sin and a turning away from those and towards God. And that's true, but there's this change in direction in our lives because there is a change of allegiance in our hearts. Those within the church of Sardis may have identified with Jesus at some point, but true repentance means no longer aligning ourselves with the world, but uniting ourselves with Christ. We are given new hearts, new life, a new spirit. And this change leads to living differently before God and within the world. This resurrection of life being made alive in the Spirit, it's a free gift of God's grace. We don't have to do anything to earn our righteousness before God, our right standing before God. Jesus has done all the work for us. So though that costs us nothing, we have to go all in. We have to go all in with Jesus. Our professions of faith do not make us Christians our compartmentalized Christianity is really no Christianity at all. Growing up in a church doesn't make us a Christian. Jesus wants all of us. That's kind of our big idea here that Jesus is pointing us to. Following Jesus means that he wants our entire lives. Christians treasure Jesus above anything that this world has to offer. Our salvation costs us nothing, but following Jesus will cost us everything. All of us. As we cling to the gospel, the Christian life is marked by continued repentance and obedience. And this life lived for serving Jesus, for standing out in our culture, it will bring trials and it will bring tribulation. But it's worth it. This brings us to our last section here. What future promises does Jesus make and, and who are those who are worthy to receive those promises. Again, Jesus ends each of these last seven letters, each of his seven letters, with a glimpse into the future. What awaits those who are worthy? Let's look at verse 4 and 5. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Those are some sweet promises right there. But who are they for? Who are these worthy ones? Again, in each of these letters, Jesus tells us that the ones who are worthy are the ones who conquer. And church, we know that Jesus is the true one who has conquered. 
Jesus conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the one to whom every knee will bow someday. Right? King Jesus is in charge. All of his enemies will be, a ma- uh, be made a footstool for him one day, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus is the one who conquers. And those who give their whole lives to him are united to him in his conquest. If we give all of ourselves to Christ, we join in his victory. Those are the ones who are worthy. Those are the ones whose names will never be blotted out of the book of life. That means we get to walk with Jesus for all eternity. And Jesus will confess our names to the angels in heaven and to his Father in heaven. If you remember Matthew, Jesus said that if you deny me before others, I will deny you before my Father. It's clear here that we can either live our lives for the praise of men, we can build up our own reputation in our communities, and our culture, or we can live our lives for Jesus. And he will praise our names to God the Father. Something else I want us to notice here in verse 4. In this dead, decaying, lifeless church, there were still a few faithful saints. I believe there are many faithful saints here at Christ Community. But I want us to remember this. To remember this when we encounter, uh, get to know, meet people from different congregations uh, in our community or different congregations who we uh, believe are no longer preaching the gospel. Churches that we think are dead and decaying, we want to be charitable in our interactions with them. Let's assume that there are brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's assume the best of them, them and assume that they are some of the few faithful in that congregation. The few who have not soiled their garments. Jesus uses some harsh words all throughout this letter. This is another picture the Bible gives us for sin. All right, when we live our lives for ourselves, we are stained by sin. When we give our allegiances to culture instead of Christ, we soil our garments. Sin is something that defiles us. And God cannot be in the presence of even the smallest blemish. We were on vacation uh, earlier last month and we had sickness move through our family and our little girl had an accident. Parents, Uh, What happens when your child has a really bad accident? What happens to those clothes afterwards? I don't care how new they were or how nice they were. They go right in the trash. Friends, Jesus knows that we've defiled ourselves. We have all sinned and fallen short. He knows all the crap that we've ever done in our whole lives. And yet Jesus does not throw you away. He will not throw you away. Instead, he takes on our filth on the cross. And he takes off his royal robes and wraps us in them. If you have gone all in with Jesus, he wraps you in his perfection. He wraps you in his spotless 
garments. Because he was slain, we are washed by his blood. Because there is a promise of an eternal wedding feast that Jesus is preparing his bride, the church, for. That's why he clothes us in white. We are his bride, church. We are worthy because Jesus makes us worthy. And yet, so many of us struggle to feel worthy. Over the last few weeks, I've felt unworthy. There have been a number of sins from my past that have kind of resurfaced. I've felt uh, exposed and embarrassed, ashamed of some of the things that I've done. It can be hard to believe that I'm even forgiven, let alone worthy. But through my wife and some friends here at Christ Community, even through my Kids, God has reminded me that I am fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved. You see, God works through our failures and uh, even our humiliation to show us that we are dead without him, but in Christ we are alive. Christ community, Jesus knows everything about you, and he is the source of life. Let's stop playing these religious games. Stop pretending on Sundays and going out and living like the culture the rest of our lives. Let's stop giving our hearts allegiances to the world. Jesus did not give up on the dead church in Sardis, and he will not give up on you. See, God is in the business of resurrecting dead churches, and he is in the business of resurrecting people who are dead in their sins. Jesus has not given up on you. Jesus died so that you could live in him. Wake up, church. Remember the gospel. Believe the gospel. Receive the gospel and repent. Give your whole lives to Christ because he gave up his life for you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, these are some hard words to hear, some harsh words to hear. Let us not fall into decay. Help this church to keep you at the center. Let us always, from generation to generation, cling to Christ. It's by your resurrection power that we become a living Church, let our reputation be built on Christ. A church marked by gospel fidelity, repentance, obedience. God, help us to remain steadfast as you transform us by your Spirit to be more and more like Jesus. Guard our hearts from loving your creation instead of loving our Creator. Jesus, help us to love you most.